You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We are intrigued by new technology, inventions that can and do change the world, such as the printing press, the internal combustion engine, and, of course, artificial intelligence. These are developments by which we frequently mark humanity's progress. However, in this episode, we want to do something different, to look at simple objects so deceptively modest that they seldom elicit more than a shrug and a, so what? Nevertheless, when they were invented, each created a revolution by changing how we work, do business, or go about our lives. This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, how the calculator ignited the computer age, how sewing a bit of fabric into clothing became a defining moment for women's independence, and how lined paper helped build an empire. This episode is Extraordinary Ordinary Objects. The objects we picked to talk about came about by preference and chance. After all, there are countless innovations throughout history we could have chosen, and even countless modest innovations that had big effects. For example, nails and screws or barbed wire. And even the toothbrush is considered a major innovation. Standardized printing colors. Okay, that's a surprising one. Why is that, Seth? Well, because, you know, you're, you're, maybe you're writing a book and you have illustrations and you look at the illustration copy you have and if it doesn't match what you see in the book, you're probably not a happy camper or a happy author. So you need some way to standardize these things. I see. That's really interesting. So our selections in this episode can stand in for a host of inventions that made our lives easier or more efficient some way or the other, but that are often overlooked. Well, let's dive into our first example of a modest invention that had a big effect. Hi there. My name is Keith Houston, and I am the author of Empire of the Sum, The Rise and Reign of the Pocket Calculator. Seth, what drew you to this subject? I mean, it just doesn't add up. <laughs> yes. I have to say, it's from personal experience. I mean, I was around for the first pocket calculators uh, that were talked about here. And, uh, you know, they were they were a big deal, right? You could replace a giant machine or a whole lot of paper and pencil work with something that would fit in your pocket. And, you know, that that was really the it thing. Well, Keith Huston gives us the history of an object whose introduction looked like a minor improvement, but led to major changes in society. Keith, the idea of using some sort of tool, some device, in the service of mathematics is not a particularly recent idea. What were the first pocket calculators, in your opinion? I mean, counting sticks or something like that? Yeah, I think um, the oldest known mathematical device that humans created is is a baboon femur. Obviously, they didn't create it. But so prehistoric humans somewhere in, I think, South, what is now South Africa, used this bone to record numbers. They scratched or etched notches in it, kind of crosswise across the bone. And there are 29 of them. They appear to have been added by four different people. So this, they were counting something that was important, something that was worth um, a whole group of people collaborating to track. And it's about 42,000 years old. The, the practice of recording numbers on some sort of uh, stick or bone lasted up until about the 19th century. It's, it's called using a tally stick. 
And the only thing, I guess, well, okay, maybe you can say counting is calculating because what's calculating? It's just adding two quantities together. What's counting is just adding one to another quantity. So they were in some ways calculating. And the only thing that stops it from being a pocket calculator is that pockets probably didn't exist at that point. Uh, but it was, it was you know, small, portable, and it was used to record numbers. It was used to count. So there's an argument that says this was a calculator of some sort. Now, if, if I think back to my youth, you know, uh, the most interesting calculating device I had was one of those mechanical ones that came in in, I guess, the 40s or 50s. And, uh, you know, you would turn a crank. It didn't even have a motor in it. You turned a crank and you could multiply numbers together, whatever. And the inside was filled with all these metal pieces you know, it was much more complex than a typewriter, and all it could do was add, subtract, multiply, and divide. And you had to turn the handle to make them work. When did those first come out? I mean, those actually mechanized arithmetic. That's right. So the first practical uh, version of that sort of thing was called the arithmometer. And it was invented by a French accountant, a kind of a pioneer of insurance. And he was a quartermaster for Napoleon's army in Spain in the very early 19th century, the first decades of the 19th century. And as someone who had lots of calculations or computation to do in managing the, 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 the uh, stock for the army, I guess, and as someone who then went into insurance, he just needed to calculate and compute lots of things. And he spent about 30 or 40 years trying to perfect this thing that he called the arithmometer. But he stuck with it. And eventually his company made about a thousand of these arithmometers by the early 20th century. And it was the first genuinely successful mathematical calculator but the idea was much older than that the idea is at least 200 years older and a whole pile of people across Europe tried to invent something like this and most of them failed they were not quite robust enough they couldn't carry you know if you add one to nine then it rolls over to ten the thing that the arithmometer got right was it had a very robust carrying mechanism so yeah so the really the answer is that the oldest of these calculators is early early 19th century but they really took off when they were electrified when people added electric motors to them. That made them a lot easier to use. You didn't have to crank the handle as you used to have to do. I, I have to say I'm somewhat nonplussed, if not discouraged, by the fact that I can remember some of these early mechanical calculators. When the electric version of those came in, mm. the, the fact that they were electric was only to save you the trouble of having to turn a crank when you wanted to get a result. Yep, that's, that's exactly it. There was a big uh, project in the US uh, between the wars, I think it was, uh, called the Mathematical Tables Project. So before everyone had access to a calculator, or indeed before computers had been invented, if you wanted to do sophisticated maths, let's say you needed to know the sine of something or the cosine, or you needed to square something or find the square root, you needed a book. And this book would just have tables. What's my input number? What's my output number? And that means that someone had to laboriously calculate all of the answers in this book. And that's what the Mathematical Tables Project did. It brought together tens or hundreds of people, and they worked as what were called human computers. They all took a small part of a problem, and the organization as a whole worked through these big, complex problems. And they had to just manually, everyone had to manually crank it by hand. But yeah, by the end of the day, your arm would ache because you'd pulled that lever or turned that crank so many times. I can't say that I ever owned one of those computers, but what I did have was a Hewlett-Packard 9100 machine. Well, I didn't have it. The school I was attending had one, and it was on my desk all the time because it was too heavy to move to anybody else's desk. But that thing, <laughs> it, it could do all the mathematical functions that you ever could need, really it did. But the big thing about it was that it was programmable, and you could save your program on what looked like a chewing gum stick. I guess it was a magnetic stick. And that was a big, big advance because you could have a, a drawer full of these uh, programs ready to go. There is so much interesting stuff to say about the 9100A. Apparently, uh, when they were marketing it, um, Bill Hewlett, who's one of the founders of Hewlett-Packard, uh, he gave an interview after the fact and he said, we just called it a calculator. If I called it a computer, suddenly it was too hard to sell because everyone thought computers filled rooms and were incredibly expensive. And so they marketed what was basically a simple computer as a calculator. Um, and then the last thing is you mentioned how heavy it was. Um, apparently when Bill Hewlett asked his engineers, he said, I want a calculator that will fit. He had this desk which had a little, a little um, kind of podium that slid out for a typewriter. So you could push your typewriter away when you weren't using it. He said, I need it to fit in there. 
And so they built the prototype and they tried it when he was on holiday and it didn't fit. So they had a carpenter come in and enlarge the hole in his desk so that it would slide back inside. Well, that's amazing. I have to say there was a fellow who used to work here, Barney Oliver. And for many years, he was the uh, guy in charge of research and development at Hewlett Packard. And uh, I, I asked him, this HP 35 I've got on my desk, right? That's the one I had back then. I said, you know, what was the deal there? And he said that it was either Hewlett or Packard, I don't remember which, asked Barney, he said, look, if we built this thing again today, whatever today was, it was in the 1970s, using integrated circuits, how big would it be? And uh, Barney went away and came back an hour later, probably didn't take him that long actually, and he said, well, it'll fit in your pocket. And he said, let's build it. They had, they had actually done a market research program and, and decided that the only people who were going to buy it would be engineers and scientists. Mm. Is that what happened? No, it's not. So the interesting, well, one of the interesting things with HP 35 is that nothing about it was new in a sense. At that point, integrated circuits weren't new. All of the algorithms had been proven in the 9100A. But they just, they just did this amazing job of shrinking it down. They did the best that they could in basically every aspect. And you'll know because you own one, but it's quite a pleasing device to look at. It was one of the first calculators that I think, one of the first pocket calculators that, that had been sort of actively designed. Someone had looked at the problem and tried to solve it in an aesthetically pleasing way. It has nice color-coded buttons, kind of regular button grid and so on. And it turned out to be much more successful. They actually marketed it in Esquire and uh, they sold it in, oh, some big department store. I want to say Macy's. Um, so it was aimed, although, yeah, although the HP marketing department thought we'll only, able, we'll only ever be able to sell this to engineers, they kind of tried to sell it to everyone and it pretty much worked. You had students, math students, who were selling their cars to buy HP 35s and the, the engineers at NASA who bought them had to lock them away because they went walkabout too often. They were too desirable. So it was a massive success and there's an argument that it kind of invented the concept of a desirable electronic device, of a consumer electronic device a sophisticated one, not just like a transistor radio or something, that people had to have. What about this term pocket calculator? I mean, mm. uh, certainly none of the early <laughs> versions of this device would fit in your pocket unless you had a pocket the size of New Jersey. <laughs> it was effectively, it was the microchip that made this possible. So the first intended pocket calculator was called the TI Caltech. And Texas Instruments wanted to sell microchips. They'd made hay selling microchips to the US military, but they basically exhausted all of the avenues to sell microchips to the US military. You know, you only need to build so many nuclear missiles before you have enough. Um, so what they did was they decided to build a calculator and that became this prototype, but they had real problems bringing the chips in it to kind of production levels. They couldn't make enough of them. And so by the time they were able to do that, they'd been overtaken by other companies who were doing the same thing with more recent chip designs. And so they, they kind of arrived. It was a big, heavy thing, like a big paperback. It would have fit in uh, maybe the pocket of like an overcoat or something. Um, but the first actually pocket-sized calculator, I think, was only a year or two later, like 1971 or thereabouts, from a Japanese company called Buzzycom. And they did quite well. But yeah, nowadays, I would say the two big ones that people might think about are probably Casio and uh, Texas Instruments. An interesting thing about Buzzycom, ah, oh, so many connections here, is that they made they wanted to make um, quite sophisticated calculators. So they had this whole this whole set of chips they wanted to make, and they thought, well, we need to find a company to make these for us. So they designed all the chips, and they found a little startup called Intel, and they asked Intel if they could make them this chipset. And Intel said, no, this is too complicated, but we can simplify this. We can give you a memory chip, a CPU, and a shift register, which is a particular sort of input-output chip. And they did, and this became the first general purpose desktop computing chipset. So calculators, again, are in some ways responsible for the development of the modern computer. So years ago when I was in high school, nerds had slide rules dangling from their belts. Uh, when, <laughs> when did that switch to pocket calculators? Any idea? I imagine as soon as pocket calculators became available in high school. What I find quite interesting is that the calculator was just a sort of ambient part of life. There wasn't a lot of thought given to it. It's like a pencil or a notepad. Um, no one wrote penetrating insights on the, you know, the, the sociological uh, meaning of calculators in high school. Certainly maths teachers worried about, you know, will our kids become unable to do maths? But yeah, the, the, the kind of the social impact of the calculator remains to be really dug into. 
So yeah, I, I'm 100% sure that uh, nerds just moved smoothly from slide rules to pocket calculators as soon as it became available. But whether it was the calculator that made you a nerd or not is, uh, you know, is it correlation or causation? I'm not sure. Finally, Keith, do you have any long-term prognosis for the uh, descendants of the pocket calculator? There's an argument that says that your smartphone or your desktop computer is just as much a descendant of the calculator as it is of the computer as a whole. So I think it's pretty healthy. And the fact that, you know, decades now after pocket calculators have fallen by the wayside, I can still open a calculator app on my phone makes me think that the concept of the calculator is in it for the long haul. Well, Keith Houston, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Not at all. Thank you for having me. Keith Houston is the author of Empire of the Sum, The Rise and Reign of the Pocket Calculator. Well, that was really fun, Seth. I wonder if we could explore this idea of how inventions transform society, but not always for the better. Are you up for that? Uh, I'm anxious to try. Well, there's a saying that every human invention is a human amputation. That is, with everything that we gain, we lose something too. And then with time, we've forgotten what we've forgotten. And perhaps it's a skill that we've forgotten. And in this case, what do you think we lost with the introduction of the pocket calculator? Yeah, well, I think most of us lost the ability to do long division, frankly, or to take a square root. And those are things that they were still teaching in uh, elementary school when I was going through elementary school. But, you know, people don't do that anymore. They say, why, why should we show you how to compute a cosine or a sine or a square root or any of those things when all you have to do is push the buttons on this small device that almost everybody has? And, you know, that's true. It was sort of like the invention of the typewriter. It, it just made courses in which they taught you how to write cursive script weren't terribly useful anymore. I'd like to come back to long division because... You could make the argument that there's no particular advantage to us as human beings in doing it in our heads or on paper. So I guess what I'm asking, did we lose something of value when we stopped doing it on paper? Yeah. No, probably not. I mean, I, I agree with your implicit suggestion there that, you know, nobody needs to know how to do long division anymore because you can, you know, just for 10 bucks, you can buy the hardware to do it for you. But, you know, some people would say, yeah, it's sort of like uh, nobody knows how to read Latin anymore, uh, but you don't need to because it's all been translated or something like that. And that's true at some level. On the other hand, um, it's nice to have at least some part of the population that still remembers how to do things uh, the old-fashioned way. Sometimes that turns out to be useful. Not terribly often, but sometimes. Unless you enjoy putting your calculator, not to mention your keys and your cell phone, in a pouch at your waist or in a satchel around your neck, you are grateful for the arrival of the humble pocket. How it came about next. It's Extraordinary Ordinary Objects on Big Picture Science. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now we have a sense of how one extraordinary, ordinary object, the pocket calculator, like the HP 35 you owned way back when, Seth, was quite transformative when it made the scene. That was, as I say, kind of a big thing. You could have a device that would fit in the top drawer of your desk that, you know, replaced big machines or a whole lot of a whole lot of paper. And, uh, you know, it was kind of almost miraculous to have that kind of capability in such a small package. But you know, those ancient calculators, the sticks and bones that Keith Houston said people used to tally things almost beat out your HP 35 and other models to be the first pocket calculators, except for one thing. So they were in some ways calculating. And the only thing that stops it from being a pocket calculator is that pockets probably didn't exist at that point. 
I think pockets are extraordinary because they allow us to act and make and move through the world. I think we don't think of them, but we rely on them. I'm Hannah Carlson. I teach dress history and material culture at the Rhode Island School of Design. My book is Pockets, an intimate history of how we keep things close. Our next extraordinary ordinary object is found in pants and jackets and more reliably those designed for men than women. I have certainly experienced the challenge of going out to some event where carrying a bag is cumbersome, but I have to bring my keys and some cash, so I have to get inventive about where to stash them, and I've stuck them in socks and in boots, which sometimes makes it hard to pay for things because you have to pull off your boot. Now we'll hear from Dr. Carlson how a bit of cloth and thread changed where we put our stuff and even how we express our individuality. But first, what is a pocket? Not every cavity in clothing is one. I mean, there are pockets that are temporary and the world over folks have um, draped clothes around their body. Think of the Roman toga and the toga as you wrapped it might have a kind of cavity. Uh, That cavity was called the sinus and certainly weapons were carried in that cavity. That I don't consider a pocket necessarily. I define pockets in my book as something stitched permanently into clothes. You write about small bags that were carried outside the body that were called pockets? Yeah, so the early early pockets are independent of clothes. And pockets just mean small bag. So, you know, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales records um, a pocket lined in wax. Uh, and that was among the tools useful for the alchemist. So they certainly were once outside small bags. It's only when they come, when tailors decide to stitch them inside clothing that I call them an inset pocket. I'd like to just stop and have people think about what's in their pockets right now. So in my pockets right now, I have hair ties and I have one cough drop. I think this is from last week. I actually am wearing a vest with a lot of pockets in it. And I have a Kleenex. If we went through your coat, what might we find in your pocket? Well, the things that you need to get around. So the phone and um, a wallet. And I love, you know, there's some funny, weird things too. Little mementos, the little stone I picked up that I love from the beach and, you know, uh, receipts and things like that. So for people listening to this, if they think about what's in their own pockets right now, then imagine going about your day without a pocket. And Hannah, describe what life was like before there were pockets. Well, pockets are a really late invention and people have actually, were perfectly fine with all of the bags that they've carried for millennia and across the globe, across cultures, whether it's slung around your neck, attached to a belt, carried in the hand, balanced on the head, bags are just a universal accessory. As you said, people were doing fine without pockets, and yet there was a need for pockets because necessity is what drives invention. And did the pocket come about because of an epiphany? It seems as though we will never know, and they seem far more improvisational than they do intentional. It really seems as though some tailor or a number of them said, you know, these big fat breeches that men are wearing, and let me pause and define breeches. So in the 16th century, men are wearing these big puffy bloomers that look sort of like pumpkins. They were called big barrels. And they were stuffed uh, full of tailor's waist to make them look nice and fat and fashionable. And it seems to me that someone said, you know, this bag doesn't really fit around your waist anymore now that you're wearing these very voluptuous and fashionable breeches. So I'm just going to stick it inside that waist belt. And these early pockets really look like drawstring bags just stuffed into your breeches. But it, it's remarkable, isn't it? Because as an innovation, few things could be as modest as taking a piece of cloth and sewing it to another piece of cloth. And yet it really changed what people were able to carry with them and what they were able to do. I suppose it's notable that it seems to have first appeared in men's clothing. Absolutely. And I think what it sort of does is change the social scene. And now privacy is something that is absolutely available to you. So the pocket is, it's a private space that you carry with you in public. So the first really uh, intriguing shift is weaponry. So weapons in the 16th century are all about status and you see that you're brave and you're carrying this dagger and a big sword. Um, And one of the first objects to be miniaturized is the gun. You can now carry it on your person, a concealed weapon, 
And this becomes quite terrifying. You know, you could meet someone and you don't know what their intentions are, and the pocket enables that kind of concealment. Are there objects other than weapons that were put into pockets in those early days in the 16th century? Oh, sure. Um, handkerchiefs, pocket glasses, artifacts of gentility, money certainly, and coins, and there were pocket Bibles. You know, books are miniaturized early on. One of the most practical things that people began to carry on them, and there was a pocket designed to carry it, is the pocket watch. When did the pocket watch make its debut? I believe the pocket watch is quite early, and I think it's 16th century, but you know, it could be a little earlier, and don't quote me on that. But the fascinating thing about the pocket watch is that it has a special pocket, and that's the fob pocket often, and you could carry it right there and have access to your watch. And this is the incredible thing about mobile technology is that women don't have access to pocket watches. And so women wore watches like jewelry, like you would pin it to your skirt or wear it as a necklace almost. You write that the pockets in Thomas Jefferson's clothing allowed him to carry many scientific instruments. This was an impressive list. I think it was like thermometer, compass, writing instruments. What sorts of things did he carry on his person? And can you just describe where on the body they, these pockets would be? Sure. I mean, once you have the three-piece suit, suddenly pockets proliferate. And so you have interior, breast coat pockets, hip pockets, tail pockets. You might have nine pockets uh, in a coat and several in your trousers, a fob pocket at your waistband for something like money. And Thomas Jefferson, I mean, he had a thermometer, a surveying compass, a pocket sextant, a level, writing instruments, a globe, a notebook. And he used all those things. A globe? It must have been a miniaturized globe. A mini little globe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I think of that suit then as sort of a mobile laboratory. And I think that's what gets to this question of why is this so remarkable? I mean, it's almost as though the pocketed suit is a kind of technology because it allows you to carry all these tools of measurement and record keeping and science. What's interesting, notable about this list is that it seems like the use for pockets has strayed significantly from utilitarian, right? So we could all think of maybe three or four things that we'd absolutely have to keep on this or would like to keep on us as we go about the world. <laughs> but some of these items, I don't think you could make the case for that. So it really allowed a lot of latitude in allowing people to define who they are and what they consider you know, a luxury or a necessity. You're absolutely right that that's why those objects can be considered so um, revealing. And it's why we're so curious about other people's pockets. What do they say about you? One of the uh, museum exhibits that's most frequently visited at the Library of Congress is that of Abraham Lincoln and what he carried in his pockets the night he was assassinated. And this notion that, oh, if I could just see what he thought he needed and what he got when he wasn't thinking that day, then I have access to him. What was he carrying? Well, he was carrying some very sort of everyday things, but he also had um, a couple of reviews of his presidential candidacy that were very positive. And so here you have, oh, even this man who we think didn't care much about his standing still needed a few nice press reports. It was still nice to hold, you know, those things that were positive. Now, as we come to the time that women's clothing had pockets and the whole issue of whether or not women get to have pockets, there is the introduction of the suffragette suit in 1910 or so. And there was a New York Times headline around this time that proclaimed plenty of pockets in the suffragette suit. So that was an actual selling point and a novelty of these suits of the turn of the century, one century ago. Yeah, absolutely. The idea that women could now have access to pockets with these ready-made suits was thrilling. And Vogue said, oh, women are gonna be so excited. Um, finally, what they've wanted is, has come to pass. But it was quickly recognized that as fashions changed, so did women's access to inset pockets. And pockets really come and go. Pockets seem to come 
into fashion, for example, they follow wartime fashion. So World War One, World War Two, you see women with lots of big pockets that look sort of military in inspiration. But you know, the next year, fashion slims down and women don't have that access. I, I think this gender distinction in pockets reveals what we think about men and women's social roles and who gets to act and make in the world. And there's an image that you describe in your book, this would have been prior in the mid 19th century, so around 1855, that gives you an idea of just how radical the pocket is. This is probably one of my favorite bits of history that you describe, and it's the drawing of Walt Whitman on the cover of his book, Leaves of Grass. Hannah, if you could describe his stance and why this image was considered vulgar, why it created a bit of a sensation. So the frontispiece to the 1854 Leaves of Grass has Walt Whitman in his shirt sleeves and canvas trousers. And he is, he has sort of cocked his hat and he has his hips askew and one hand lazily rests in his pocket. And if you compare that frontispiece to say the frontispiece of Emerson, you see this staid Victorian in his suit and is looking very serious indeed and both hands visible you know, on his lap. And so that's the sort of wonderful shift, this idea Whitman explicitly wanted to let go of ceremony and be natural and be himself. And he did that in a way with this image. It's not just that he's in his shirt sleeves, it is because he has his hand in his pocket. That is what is considered vulgar and rough. Why? You know, pockets locate to lust. Pockets are located, they're right next to the genitals. And it's, you know, get your hands out of your pockets is something recurring admonition of mothers and educators through the 18th and 19th centuries. And the idea is the gesture is just too bodily. That is if we follow the rules of etiquette. But if you follow the rules of oratory, you notice that by removing the hand into the pocket in this private space, you're also suggesting something about your willingness to engage. So emotional reserve. And so it is still relentlessly used in fashion imagery and on Instagram. If you wanna look cool, you have your hands in your pockets because it suggests this remove. Finally, let's talk about the future of the pocket, because you write that H.G. Wells, for example, proposes in his science fiction novel, The Shape of Things to Come, that people won't need pockets in the future because they'll be liberated from material pursuits. But we could also make the case that we won't need pockets because our technology will be embedded in our bodies. And I wonder if you could just lay that out for us and if you think that 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 will come to pass, the pocket going extinct. Well, I think there's this idea that, you know, futurists and technologists believe we could abolish all encumbrance, that we wouldn't have to carry any tools. You don't need a key for your door if you have uh, electromagnetic thread sewn into your sleeve and you can pass your sleeve over the lock. And certainly in this sort of uh, field of wearables, which is a science fiction meets fashion synergy, the idea is that all of our tools could somehow be embedded in our clothes that our clothes could receive and transmit digital signals. But I do believe that this sort of futurist idea does not take into account the fact that people love all the incidental stuff that they carry. There is no digital handkerchief. Um, We are incorrigible collectors of odds and ends. And I think that not everything we have necessarily fulfills some function. And I think pockets, we still love them. They're not gonna go anywhere anytime soon. So even if we put chips in our brain or tuck bits of electronics in the pockets of our skin, you could say, we will still need the external pockets in our clothing because if you're walking on a fall day, where else are you going to put those, those leaves of grass that you pick up along the way? I love that. Yes. Yep. Well, Hannah Carlson, thank you so much for making the case for the preservation of the pocket. You are the ultimate pocket protector. Thank you so much for talking to us. Oh, thank you. This was so much fun. Absolutely. (laughs) 
Hannah Carlson describing the history and future of pockets. She teaches dress history and material culture at the Rhode Island School of Design. And her book is Pockets, an intimate history of how we keep things close. Well, one of those things tucked away in your pocket might be a lined notebook. Next, we'll hear how the introduction of those lines helped build an empire. It's Extraordinary Ordinary Objects on Big Picture Science. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We now present our last modest object whose introduction had a profound effect that reverberated around the world. For this one, though, we need someone who is truly book smart. My name is Dominic Riley, and I'm a bookbinder. Okay, you have an extraordinary, ordinary object that you're going to describe and how it came about, but what is the object? Let's start with that. The object is called the Shaw Pen Ruling Machine. There used to be Tens of thousands of them. Every small town had one. In, in what century? What are we talking about? Well, it was invented in about the 1840s in Lancashire. And that's relevant because when you look at this machine, the closest thing that it looks like is a loom. So it was, it, it was ma manufactured by the same people who built the looms in Lancashire, which, of course, is where the Industrial Revolution happened and where all the cotton was made to make the fabric that went all over the empire. That's right. You're the ones that started the Industrial Revolution before it came to this country. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> um, so say the name of the machine again yeah. and tell me what it does. Right. It's, it's a pen ruling machine. It actually creates ruled paper. Yes. So if you imagine, in, in the world of books, there, are, there were two categories of book production. There was letterpress, books with words, and there was stationary binding, which is either blank books or, more importantly, more usually, ruled books. So, now, now, Dominic, yeah. you may need to explain to people the concept of writing on paper. We are in the digital age, yes. and there was a time when people wrote <laughs> everything well, on paper. By law, all across the industrialized world, all people who ran a business, which includes banks and solicitors' offices and people who deal in merchandise and hotels, have to record all their activities in books that are made officially by apprentice-trained account bookbinders. That's, that's the field we're talking about. Stationary binding is also called account bookbinding or ledger binding. So if we have a picture, if we want a picture like Ebenezer Scrooge sitting, yep. sitting at a desk with a quill pen yep. making notes in his ledger, that's what we're talking about. And they were key to business. Yep. Every Dickens film has some scrivener. Did you say Dickens' film? Yeah, every film you watch of a, of a Dickens novel has some... It's, it's also in the books, too. I think he's no, known no, for I, his yeah, books. I'm just saying people have a mental picture. I'm thinking of, you know, watching any one of these films. And interestingly, the paper that goes in these books by Act of Parliament had to be handmade paper. You know, in the, in the age of machine-made paper, they continued to use handmade paper because it was the most indestructible. Then what? And why so? Well, because in, in about 1837, the new... Fordrinia paper-making machine was invented, and that allowed us to make paper out of trees for the first time. Wood pulp. Wood pulp is acidic and it's brown, so you have to bleach it to get it less acidic and get it paler. But all that paper is now very attracted to acid, and so it all, it all breaks down. Handmade paper, on the other hand, is made from cotton or linen, so it's 100% acid-free, and essentially it will last forever. Now, this discussion is in a show called um, Extraordinary, Ordinary Objects. So what is extraordinary about having paper that has lines on it? Is that what's extraordinary, or was it the machine itself? But could you give us at least a sense of why this was a revolutionary concept? Yeah, I think it's a sort of, um, it's an, this, this is an origin story about this machine, right? So previous to this, all books that needed rows or columns, and they did exist for hundreds of years before the modern age, 
and those lines would be drawn with a quill and a steel straight edge. Okay. Suddenly, when the population triples between 1780 and 1850, and you've got all you've got the you know the, the massive expansion of commerce in a scale we'd never seen before, suddenly you now have millions of books that need to be written in, right? So the people who invent this machine in Lancashire in the middle of the 19th century are responding to this sudden threefold demand for ruled books. Let me ask you kind of a naive question, yeah. but why did we need ruled paper at all? I mean, why not just write on you know, plain paper, blank paper? How did those lines yeah. make business more efficient? Well, I guess anybody who uses an Excel spreadsheet will know this. <laughs> if you're going to record information... You need to put it in neat rows and columns. It's as simple as that. And um, the machine allows you to, to make thousands of pieces of paper a day as opposed to, you know, maybe rule one book. Describe this machine for us and how big is it, for example? Right. So let's see. You're standing at this machine, which is about five foot wide and about 12 foot long. It's mostly made of wood and it has a conveyor belt rolling all the time. You feed paper through it, and it gets inked. So if people know about letterpress printing, where you press metal type into paper, this does something completely different, is how the ink is delivered to the paper. It's a flannel, like a face cloth, and it sits literally on top, above the paper. And it is saturated with, literally flooded with ink. That ink is then delivered to the nibs, down a little metal chute with a piece of string. The ink goes onto the paper through capillary action. And so, you know, the guy operating the machine is constantly topping up the ink, sorting out the, the string. Um, so the thing about the machine then is that it was probably one of the most important machines that kept commerce going in an age when everything was written down by hand. And they were only knocked out of sight by the computers and as we know they didn't come in in common use till what the 70s the 80s but it, they were they were viable well into the 80s let's go back to the 1850s though where yeah. this paper is just being produced for the first time mm. with lines on it it's ending up in these businesses and these account offices all over england mm. how is it changing how business is done can you just take us back there and and what it would have been like to be an accountant writing in this way or a business now employing these these sorts of books how would yeah. it change things well i'm not a political economist or a political his economic historian whatever but i do know enough to know and it's the empire of course it's not just england it's the all the empires all the european empires. so it's all over the the built world these things are being used that's a different kind of ruling well well done queen victoria the great ruler um she never ruled a piece of paper however um I think this is a chicken and egg thing. So on the one hand, the empire is expanding, the population is expanding, readership is expanding, you know, all over the country, the UK I'm talking about, people are teaching themselves to read. It's working class people teaching themselves to read. But, 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 but hang on, the, the expansion of the British Empire mm. and people teaching themselves to read is not because they have lined paper, is it? No, it's related. So the expansion of, of commerce through this, this world that is tripling in population in three generations means that there's more stuff to write down and needs to be written down by law, right? That's the point. So that's why we need millions of pieces of ruled paper to be produced every week and not just a few like it would have been in the 18th century. But I wonder if you could give us an idea of how life changed then with the ruled paper um, that these machines created. Well, I think in an ordinary office, whether it was a bank or firm of solicitors, when they were, they, they were already using blank books that they would rule by hand, they would, they would probably have a couple of clerks in the office recording the activity of those businesses. With the coming of the ruled paper, made possible by this extraordinary machine, you would now typically have, in a medium-sized town, in the largest bank in town, you might have a room upstairs with 20 clerks working full-time. A massive, massive increase in productivity and efficiency and of course because the paper exists and because the machine exists to rule the lines 
that increases the amount of stuff that you now can write down. And I think they probably invented new things to write down because we can. You know, let's start recording our inventory where we never used to. We just used to look in the cup and see when we need to reorder envelopes or something. Now you can write it down. I mean, I think we're still doing this now, aren't we? We're creating so much paperwork for ourselves. Paperless office. Remember that? Didn't happen, did it? We create more paper than we ever used to. So the paper that they made in the 19th century with these machines, I would say, I don't know. I don't think anybody's written it down, but I bet it increased productivity like a hundredfold. It had to have done. There were millions and millions and millions of these books made across the industrialized world every year. So it sounds like what these books allow people to do is organize their thoughts. That's Mm. one thing. Stay organized. Civilization needs to be organized. Business needs to be organized. But also keep track of accounts, keep track of money. And that helps drive the whole economic engine. Yeah, and it's indelibly linked to a subject that you had on a recent show, which is about the history of the filing cabinet. Well, I was going to bring that up. Good. I know that I know that you like that interview, and, and why did that appeal to you so much? This was about how filing cabinets were invented and were the precursor, in many ways, conceptually, of computers and, and organizing our thoughts and our and our ideas. But why did you like that so much? Well, obviously, being a natural nerd, and I don't like the word nerd, but we'll use it for shorthand, One's interested in in the everyday and the humdrum, the stuff that gets overlooked. I have a friend who teaches uh, British political history, and he always starts off with his undergraduates to say, write down one word that sums up the 19th century. And people might write slavery, they might write war, they might write colonialism. And one guy wrote organization. And I love that, because this is the time in our lives when we sorted everything out into neat piles and we needed to because we had this massive empire to run right because it was still the empire and that's why I love the filing cabinet thing so much because it is the most overlooked underappreciated object that 20 30 years ago even everybody had and you could probably draw the through line from Mm. the filing cabinet to the computer for organizing ideas and even from ruled paper in these books and these binders that accountants use that businesses use to the filing cabinet i mean all of this was about externalizing our memory organizing our businesses and it continues this day just in a, in a form that would be unrecognizable of course to people yeah. in the 19th century and it's no accident um again because i think most people don't think about the history of the things they use and the words they use but it's no accident that our computers have folders and they and they contain files It is a digital representation of the thing we call a filing cabinet. We could have called those things other things, but we didn't. And we still have tabs. And kids who set their tabs on their Word document have no idea that a tab was a physical metal thing that you slid along your typewriter, right? Well, finally then, Dominic, um, you are a bookbinder. You work with books, with printing machines. Where would you rank the pen ruling machine if you had to rank it alongside the printing press? The invention of paper and the creation of the first book. Those are all monumental changes in how we convey information. Do you think you could rank them in terms of importance? Oh, you can. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. The first, the most important would be the invention of paper, which is about 1600 years ago in China, took um, over a thousand years to get to us. Okay, that replaces parchment and vellum. And then I would probably say the invention of printing from movable type. The printing press? The Gutenberg printing press, as we know it, yeah. Although, of course, they had movable type in China a thousand years before. This is always the the answer to every question is, yeah, but they had it in China a thousand years before. Um, After the printing with movable type, I would suggest that the next one would be the general invention of machines to make books, so um, guillotines and automated presses to stamp covers. That's a whole family of machines that were invented in the beginning of the 19th century. Guillotines were involved in making books? Yeah, because early up for the first thousand years, books were trimmed by hand with a little blade that you ran along a little track, you know, and cut the book page at a time. When the guillotine is invented, you can cut whole books in one go. And you can also behead traitors. That's a different kind of guillotine. The, I'm not trying to be facetious. No, no, no. no. The, gu- the guillotine that trims books is exactly the same as the guillotine that cures you of your headache, as Charles Dickens said. The pen ruling machine, I think, is as important in terms of making commerce happen. But the reason that I champion it 
is because it's the one that nobody's ever heard of. Well, they have now. Dominic Riley, what a pleasure it is to talk to you. Thank you so much. Molly, great to be on your show. Thank you. Dominic Riley is a bookbinder in the UK. Well, Seth, when we consider the big picture here, one of my takeaways is that sometimes it requires a big change to make a big difference. Uh, The creation of the combustion engine is an example, but sometimes making a tiny change creates a big difference. A bit of cloth sewn into clothing or printing lines on, on paper. But I wonder if we could return to this idea of what we lose when a new invention takes over. And one of the big ones inspired by this interview is the invention of paper. Because once you could write things down on paper, you weren't compelled to commit those things to memory. And also you might write down on paper far more than you needed to remember. Well, I have to say I wasn't around for the invention of paper, but you're right. (laughs) It it certainly beat, uh, you know, chiseling stone or something like that. What's a skill that was once ubiquitous that many people could do that probably nobody could do now? Gee, that's a good question. Let me think. You can go back as far as you want. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> don't know that that helps. But I, I think that, you know, calligraphy, you know, readable, even more than readable, even uh, a, a beautiful handwriting, that was something that people would try and develop. They would practice and it wasn't so long ago, it was far less than 100 years ago, when penmanship was a valued skill. But nobody has that skill anymore. In fact, very few people can probably write cursive anymore. You just type it into a keyboard and, uh, you know, that's it. And, of course, there are big advantages to using the keyboard. On the other hand, it's something that we've lost that was you know, beautiful and admirable. Well, that's a great and surprising answer because imagine taking writing and language so seriously that you might spend hours writing a letter to a friend. But maybe everything is not entirely lost because there are people on TikTok sharing their videos of how to do calligraphy, for example. So maybe some of these old-fashioned skills don't disappear entirely but they reemerge in a new form, and they're not forever lost. This show would not be possible without the extraordinary talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Brian Edwards and Shannon Rose Geary. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that studies life in all its complexity. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostek. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science that examines modest objects that became revolutionary innovations is called Extraordinary Ordinary Objects. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.